Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Steve Ramirez, and he'll be answering your questions on casting seaward. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, uh, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and let other people know about the great show we've got going on tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Steve Ramirez about casting seaward. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Steve, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Steve's section that says register for the free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Steve's book, Casting Seaward, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Find out more about Stackpole Books. You can visit them at stackpolebooks.com. Now, here's how you can win. It must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talked about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely, take notes during the show, and type fast at the end, and maybe you'll win Steve's book, Casting Seaward. Our guest tonight is Steve Ramirez. Steve is an outdoor and conservation author who lives and writes in the Texas Hill Country. Steve's first book, Casting Forward, Fishing Tales from the Texas Hill Country, has received critical acclaim and is in its third hardcover printing. He has since published Casting Onward and his latest book, Casting Seaward. His work has appeared in various journals, including Fly Fisherman Magazine, Trout Magazine, The Fly Fish Journal, American Angler, 
Hallowed Waters Journal, Tail Magazine, Texas Sporting Journal, Explore Magazine, Under Wild Skies, Cutthroat Journal of the Arts, the Houston Library Review, and many more. Steve serves as an ambassador for Texas for the American Museum of Fly Fishing, is a life member of Trout Unlimited, and is a contributing member of the Natural Conservancy, Audubon, and the Native Fish Coalition. As a certified master naturalist, Steve is passionately involved in promoting the restoration and conservation of the watersheds, rivers, canyons, forests, deserts, wetlands, grasslands, and shorelands of North America and beyond. He is an avid hiker and world adventurous traveler who has explored four continents, but who always seems to return home to the spring-fed hill country streams of Texas. Steve lives near Comfort, Texas, and Steve, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Roger, thank you so much. It is really great to be back. Yeah, yeah. So we did a show before um, before Steve published his latest book here, Casting Seaward, and we learned about a lot about Steve and how he does his writing and so forth. So if you're interested in hearing more about Steve, I suggest you look at one of his other show. I mean, the other show that we did where we talked about a little bit more background about Steve. We're going to concentrate more tonight on his stories and what's been happening uh, in the writing of his latest book. But just search his name or on the homepage, you can just look up his name, Steve Ramirez, and in our list of guests, click on that, and then you'll get to his page, and it'll show you about the other show as well. So enjoy that show as well if you get time to watch it, and I encourage you to do so. So, Steve, yeah, last time we chatted, Casting Seaward was in the works, but not quite fully cooked yet, right? Right. I think we were still uh, still bubbling a bit, trying to make a good room. So... Um... These things take me about two years of my life each time I write one. And wow. there's, there's an awful lot to it. I write like a former Marine that I am. I'm very disciplined and driven at how I do these things. But it still takes a good solid two years per book. And right now I'm working on the fourth one in the series. Well, the thing so. is, is with your books, you're going out fishing <laughs> and creating right. stories, right? Yeah. So, right. You can't write till you have something to write about. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry for you that you have to go to all these places and fish, but, you know, it, somebody's got to do the hard work, right? It's tough. I mean, I I waited <laughs> a long time to carry this cross. It's not actually a cross. It's usually a quiver full of rods, but you know what I mean. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I sure do. So what made you, you know, your prior books were about the Texas Hill Country and other more fresh, the second book was about the freshwater fisheries and so forth. But this one, you turned and looked seaward. Why that direction? That's really a great question. And so what I'll do is I'll go backwards in order to show why I went seawards. Because what I okay. did is I started local in my own home waters here in the Texas Hill Country, an area a lot of people don't even know about. Um, and I wanted to tell that story, and then in casting onward, I'm telling the story of our freshwater native species watersheds all across America and traveled. As you said, I have a rough life. I traveled all over the United States fishing with fantastic people in their home waters, chasing native fish. So why I tell you that part is number three in the series 
is a logical step. If I started the hill country, think about ripples from a pond. I went across the United States, across the Rockies, up through the North Woods in the second book, and now I've traveled from Alaska down the California coast, the Gulf of Mexico, Caribbean, from Florida up to Montauk, New York, and tried to tell the story of our coastal waterways and the habitats that sustain the fish we love, and to do so through the eyes of the people that live there and love those waters. So that's the other great thing I get to do. Besides fishing, I get to fish with great people and experience what it's like. Basically, my question to all of them is, why do you love this place? Show me. And, and then my next question is, what are you concerned about? So I can show others. So hopefully that answers your question. It seemed logical. I'm basically following the rivers out to the sea. Yeah. And, yeah. and in this book, I actually did, in fact, not only follow rivers out to the sea, I also followed the ocean back up the rivers, following fish the entire way. So right. um, there's lessons to be learned there and, uh, and adventures to be had. Now, when you go out and select these locations, is it because you already know someone there that fishes, or do you decide, oh, this is something, an area that I haven't been to or want to write about, and then go looking for someone to fish with there? How does that all work? Uh, the answer is yes. And so what I mean by that is I already know the conception of what I've conceived for what the book should be. But just like fishing, it depends on what we find when we get out there. So some of the stories I originally thought I'd write in this book and in others turned out not to be the ones that I, would cho I chose. And that's because as I start exploring, so for instance, I start with the premise with Casting Seaward, I'm going to go from Alaska all the way around the United States and just find out what the story is, experience the fish, the fishing, the people, the culture, and yes, the food, the drink, the music, the whole thing. I try to write all of that. Because when we go fishing, that's part of what we love. You know, it's, if you could do it all from home, it might not be as exotic or as exciting. But then when I start digging into it, I may discover something I didn't know when I started. So I would liken that to we're working a river and you have a plan, you're going to go from point A to point B, but you find a thin blue line you didn't notice going into that river and decide I better take a look up there. So I do that too. And I start with the basic idea of what I'm trying to achieve. I know people that are in those areas or I reach out to people I know and say, hey, do you have a friend that you know loves and lives in that area? It's really very organic, though. It's almost like it comes to me. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, I set the goal. I set the intention. And uh, this is going to sound kind of uh, a bit woo-woo, I guess, but the universe kind of takes me from there. It all seems to work out. So did you, like, um, forecasting seaward, did you put push pins in a map, places you wanted a to go? Bit. A yeah. little bit, I did. And some of those pins got moved. Right. Um, so I pushed a pin in the map in southeast Alaska, and that one stuck. I pushed a, a pin in the map just north of Los Angeles and out on Long Island, and those stuck. But I pushed a pin into Louisiana, and that one moved to Texas. 
And wow. that just comes down to what you discover, what's going on. One place ends up getting a hurricane, another place doesn't. Right. Um, and then yeah. if you think about us as anglers, that's the way our life turns out anyway. You, you move from one river to the other because one's blown out and the other one's not. So for the most part, I was able to pick and choose. But for instance, the sections on bone fishing, I've caught bone fish in numerous places, but I purposely chose two places out of that. Um, so not, it's, I am, I am choosing along the way and I'm discovering. There's other places I went to that I really was determined to go to and it just fell into place. I wanted to return to the waters not far from where I went to boot camp in Paris Island, South Carolina, in the Marines. Oh. And, and fished the low country of South Carolina in this book, and I did. And it was, it's an amazing, amazing place that I think anybody who loves any kind of saltwater or estuary fishing should try it, should be there. Um, so well, that, try, try to answer your question. That's, and I end up discovering yeah. places where I say, you know, that was really great. I'm so glad I did that, but I may not ever go back again. I know that. There's other places where I realize I'm going to keep trying to go back there as long as I'm alive and can do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those special places. Um, and like you right. say, it's a combination of everything that's happening, you know, when it you're is. there. And, yeah, I mean, sometimes the best part of the day fishing is raising the, pouring that uh, glass of scotch on the rocks at the <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For me, for me, it's probably going to be a, a glass of wine or a local craft beer, but absolutely. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's the other thing I do. As you mentioned, I've traveled much of the world and traveled in and lived in four continents, but when I'm overseas somewhere, I tend to ask someone local, where do you eat? And the first thing they usually try to do is send me to a tourist restaurant. And they say, no, no, where are you going to eat? Yeah. And I do the same thing. It doesn't matter if I'm in Louisiana or, or uh, New York or, you know, California. What, yeah. what should we do here? What is quintessentially part of, of this place? Because, yeah, I, you know, fishing is more than catching fish. That's all it was. Yeah, sometimes that's harder than it, it seems it should be. I remember I did a business trip to um, to Berlin, and I asked the person at the, the hotel I was staying at, I said, well, where's a good place for me to get dinner tonight? And I go, well, what do you want? You want Chinese, Italian, Spanish? <laughs> I said, I want German food. <laughs> Right. Oh, German, let me think. And then, you know, they're thinking about where to go for, right. you know, and Finally, they came up with a place, and it was perfect. I had like a, a shank of pork, you know, and mm -hmm. it was delicious. But they had to think about it, you know. Sure, it's a, I mean, it's a cosmopolitan city, right? Yeah, uh, that's the same thing for my little town. People in my area in Round Comfort, Texas, they'll say, "Well, where do you like to eat around here?" I say, "At home." <laughs> I really don't know many. I don't know many of the restaurants. <laughs> So yeah, yeah it's the same yeah. way if you're in Germany, but yeah. you can get down to it, and you end up having fantastic barbecue in South Carolina, and you end up having you know uh, salmon up in Alaska, and it all works out, and it's all part yeah. of the whole story. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's part of the well, adventure. Bill Redinger, Redinger in Missouri, wrote in, and he says, 
I'm interested in how you view your purposeful work in writing about our natural world, along with your own personal journey. How do you link the two between these? That's a really great question, Bill. Thank you for it. I see them actually more every day is the same journey. And this is going to seem kind of, my answer is going to be kind of deep, but for y'all that don't know me, that's just the way I, it's the way I, I flow. So to me, I write a lot about, and one of my taglines when I was trying to figure out how do I explain to people what I write about, I said I write about nature and the best of human nature because I've spent 35 years carrying a weapon and dealing with the worst of humanity. And I write a lot about love and courage. And to me, at this part of my life, I find those two things so important. So as an angler, I treat the fish I'm catching with respect. I treat the river with respect. I treat the trees with respect. And I treat my fellow anglers with respect. I'm trying to write about and discover how we all could live better together. And that comes from 35 years of seeing the very worst of humanity play out and getting to a point where you simply said, actually, my wife said, I don't want you doing this anymore, and putting that stuff away. So to me, I'm discovering more and more that it's the same thing as people will discover this year has been, well, the past year was a year of various health challenges for me. I've had asthma. It's been evolving and getting worse, and I, I now know that I have a heart condition as well. And I bring that up only because I'm tackling those things by changing the way I do certain things and changing the way what I put into myself. And I think on this journey, I'm discovering it's the same thing with what we often call fisheries, but I want us to call habitats. It's what we put in and what we take out makes a huge difference. I'm finding this whole thing, people think I'm having adventures because I'm dodging bears in Alaska and I'm you know, riding the waves in Montauk and standing in the waves somewhere else. And that's all true. But the real adventure for me here, Bill, and I hope I'm answering your question, is that uh, we need to push on. We need to squash that little voice that tells us we can't make a difference. And I think that that's what it's all about for me. I'm just, as I fish, I'm catching a whole lot more than fish. Uh, I'm, I'm learning a lot just about life. So to me, they're the same. The better I learn yeah. to treat myself and each other, the better I learn to treat the people I'm with, and the better my life is. It's just, it's what I've found. And mm -hmm. it may not be the answer you're thinking you get, but it's my answer. I think they're the same. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And yeah. I definitely yeah. feel like I'm on a mission. You don't do this for the money, that's for sure. Uh, I am a <laughs> yeah. I'm a starving artist, so. Uh, there you go. It, but you're having this fun is, while is you're a, doing it. Yes, it's fulfilling. It's the best thing I've ever done in life. And it is especially great for me, Roger, when people read the work, whether it be in my books or in my column as Live Fisherman Magazine, and they write and say, that really impacted me. Because I'm, I'm not writing for myself. I'm writing because I want people to get something out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Okay, this one came in last, just a few minutes ago uh, on the Internet. I'll read this one to you. It's from Fred in Denver. He says, do you make notes on site 
or in plain air, or does the writing come from recollections at a later date? Yes. Fred, great question. <laughs> that and seems to be your, your go-to answer tonight, yes. <laughs> well, because in real life, uh, if I had a simple answer for you, if you said, well, what's your favorite fish? And I said, goldfish. Well, that's the end of the conversation. That's uh, right. <laughs> and it's not true. So right next to me now on my writing desk is a little outdoor journal waterproof thing you can buy at REI, and I carry them with me everywhere. I've stood in the waves, I've been in the rivers, I've been in rainforest, and I'm scribbling in this thing. So the first answer I have for you is I do write notes. And sometimes it'll drive people crazy that I'm <laughs> fishing with because they're so focused on fishing and they're wondering why is Steve sitting on a rock in the middle of the river right now scribbling in the notebook because I'm writing everything, not just about fishing. I'm writing about everything I experience, everything I see, hear, feel, smell, and think. So it's a great question. I do write plain air. As a matter of fact, I'll be in... July, I am honored to be the guest uh, for my friend Bob White, uh, and we'll be up at Bristol Bay Lodge in Alaska, and he'll be painting, and I'll be writing. So, and that's what it's going to be. I may stop in the middle of the bear-filled forest and write. Then what I do is I go back and I reorganize those notes, and I I rewrite them, and I add recollection. And from that detail, I also use photographs to, so people wonder, why are you taking a photograph of a burned tin can? And I, <laughs> it's because it, it spoke to me, and I want to remember it. And the picture was easier than writing it down. So I do all right. of that. And then I also, people don't realize when they, they may not realize when I read my books, but I do a ton of research. Every place I go, I research the history, both European and Native American. I researched the geology, the hydrology, the ecology, all these. And I have all these things at my fingertips, so to speak. And then the final step is I sit down in the right conditions in the right place here at my desk, and I let it just come to me. I relive the journey. And I have to say that's one gift I was given somehow. I may not be able to do fractions. <laughs> <laughs> but I can relive journeys from years ago, and I can remember great detail. Um, mm. That's what I do. I put myself almost trance-like into it, and it's more often than not I'll read something I've written and wonder who wrote that. It's kind of cool. Great question. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take a quick break here, Steve, and we'll be back in just a minute. And find out more about what's going on in your fly fishing world. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Musky Town, it's so much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guy, an experienced musky hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever life's adventures take you, Musky Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for musky, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity so they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's ever anything they can help you with. Next time you think of Muskie, go to Muskie Town. That's muskytown.com 
or call them at 763-312-6012. That's muskytown.com or call them at 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Steve Ramirez about casting seaward. You'd like to ask a question? For Steve, just uh, go to our homepage, fill out that form, and uh, send it, and we'll try to get it answered on the show tonight. Okay, Steve, so what is going on in your fly fishing world now that you've finished casting seaward? Which direction are you looking? <laughs> well, beside writing, like I mentioned, I'm very honored to be able to write the Seasonable Angler column for Fly Fisherman Magazine, which Nick Lyons started that, and it's a huge honor and responsibility. So that's one thing I'm involved in. But the other thing is I'm writing the fourth book in the Lions Press Casting Forward series right now, and it's in its early stages. I just came back from the Catskills in New York and from some of the classic waters of Pennsylvania. I am about to leave for Montana shortly, and after that I'll be in Alaska and Vermont. <laughs> so for someone who's really tired of air travel, I'm doing a lot of it. And again, with this fourth book, I know exactly what the story is in my head. It is mapped out. I know what story I'm trying to tell, but as I make these journeys, I discover new things. That So, for example, at Casting Onward, I went fishing with my friend Kirk Dieter up in Colorado, and we were trying to find a native cutthroat trout Colorado River cousins are in the Colorado River drainage, and we searched for three days and found none. <laughs> we found <laughs> rainbow trout and brown trout, and Kirk said to me, I'm sorry, Steve. I said, no, that is the story. That is exactly the story. So, yeah, if, yeah. so if I go someplace in salt water and what I discover is that the reefs are dead and the fish are gone, then that's the story. If they're yeah. thriving, then that's the story. So anyway, that's... I've got myself sidetracked here. You want to get me back on track, Roger? <laughs> <laughs> you sure? Yeah. You're talking about your next book. So, uh, that yeah, you're so mapped I know out. going, and it's going to be, yep. uh, I think it's going to be quite an epic journey uh, for the readers. I always know I'm writing for a reader, not for myself. And I'm looking forward to sharing it with them. Of course, I haven't experienced it all yet. And it's going to, it's going to take us from the most distant waters of Alaska to the most the waters closest to the biggest cities in America. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's a reason why I'm doing this in this way. It's with each book, there are underlying stories that I'm hoping people get while they have a great time on trips with me. Because I, I really want people to read the stories and feel like they're standing in the water with me, in the waves with me, smacking the mosquitoes with me or dodging the bears. I want them to really enjoy being on the journey but then, afterwards, I want them to come away with it saying, you know, I learned something there. <laughs> I, you know, I, I really feel like I, I was there, and I learned yeah. something. Uh, yeah, it's interesting um, you talking about, you know, fisheries in big cities. Yeah. And it's been a while ago, but I did a show on uh, fishing for bluefish out of New York and all around mm -hmm. Long Island. And That's I can believe, yeah, two different shows, but there is so much fishing there. I can believe it. And you're right by New York City, right? And then the other thing I just did recently, I interviewed Robert Connell about fly fishing Houston and southeastern Texas. 
mm-hmm. just down the road from you. And I couldn't believe right. all the fishing that's right out of Houston, and including downtown sure. Houston. Uh, or, you know, and, uh, it's, yeah, it's, we, we always want to, you know, yeah, part, yeah. Part of my argument, and you can, and they'll, anyone who decides to read Casting Seabird's going to read this. I'm going to take them to some very industrial places in Texas on the coast. And I'll also share with everybody right now that to my shock doing this book, uh, and all the great places I was out on coral reefs and the Caribbean and up in the Alaskan wilderness, when people ask me, what are your favorite places you've fished? My two favorite places actually happen to be Long Island and Montauk, where I fish with my friend David Blinken. And the other one is going to be, shockingly enough, just north of Los Angeles on the beaches of uh, Ventura County. Those are two of my favorite saltwater fishing places. And who would think right next to a big city? Yeah, uh, I want to see our cities and our towns have better fishing and outdoor opportunities for everyone. I mean, I don't see why we don't have great fishing in downtown San Antonio. <laughs> I just don't. We got a river. There's a river going through there. It can support more than than people that fall in at the Riverwalk. Yeah, yeah. The well, it, that happened in Denver, mm-hmm. the South Platte River that uh, goes right through downtown Denver. And for years, it was uh, it was just a foul piece of water, mm-hmm. you know. And efforts made or have been made to clean it up. It's not all the way clean yet. It's pretty clean to downtown, but after uh, it goes past the oil refinery, then it gets dirtied up mm-hmm. again. But it's changed a big. I mean, you can go downtown Denver, look at the skyscrapers, and fish for huge monster carp. You go upriver a little bit, you can get some smallmouth bass, and you go further up, then you're in the trout water. But it didn't yep. used to be that way, and took a lot of and people's efforts to, to get it to where, you know, uh, right. it is today. Yeah. And that's, we anglers drive that. We can drive that. Uh, here in Texas, where I live, there is a definite movement to reintroduce and reestablish healthy populations of the native Guadalupe bass in the San Antonio River. And that's something that I'm very much supportive of. So there's examples where you don't have to go to the middle of nowhere to have a great experience, uh, a natural experience, whether you're fishing or hiking or whatever you're doing. Yeah, the other show I did recently was uh, Al Quattrochi on California Corbina, you know, which oh, is, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, he says, yeah, there you have to always look because there could be some, you know, people walking the beach behind you because it can be a very crowded beach. But right there in the surf are these corvina that uh, well, you know, are super challenging fish. So That's what I was – when I mentioned Long Island and the other places in Ventura County, that's exactly the fish I chase there. Oh, really? Uh, corvina, yeah. With my, with yeah. my friend uh, Kesley Gallagher and Eileen Lane, we, we target corvina, and I have to tell you, that is the most challenging fish that I think I've ever gone after. Yeah. Um, my friend Kesley says, permit are tough, Corbina are tougher. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I am addicted to Corbina fishing, and oh, I'll do it okay. any chance I can get, not because you catch a lot of them, because you don't. Yeah, because right. It is, yeah. It's because it is that challenging, and these fish are amazing. And while anglers are trying to reach them from the shore, you've got everything from uh, sea lions and seals and dolphin trying to eat them behind the waves. 
we wish I had rocked. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're, yeah. They're pretty well, let's, let's get into some of your stories in the book. Um, tell me about the, you know, what you would consider, out of casting Seaward, your most exciting experience that you had, for whatever reason. Could have been fishing, could have been travel, could have been, you know, the person you were fishing with. What was the most exciting experience? Well, can I give you kind of a little, a couple of them? Sure, sure. Go for it. So I'll start with Corbina. Why I find Corbina so exciting, I mean, you do have to watch you don't. And, and I do have a friend that once hooked a beach runner. But um, <laughs> you do have to be careful of people behind you and and all that. But I have to say, I one thing I love about fly fishing is it, it causes us to learn about the fish's habitat, its habits, and you've got to meet the fish where they're at. And Corbina are amazing fish. It's extremely challenging. You have... Uh, uh, another a friend of mine, Randall Kaufman, he wrote something so beautiful about bone fishing, and he said, in um, in a lake, the water's not moving, but the fish are moving. In a river, the water is moving, but the fish are remaining still. And in salt, the fish are moving, and the water is moving. Uh, <laughs> I would add, with something like, some like Corbina, the fish are moving, the water is moving, and it's constantly changing depth within seconds. Yeah, um, yeah. You get one shot, and that fish may still ignore you. So that's one I find very exciting. I also find it exciting when my back is turned on the beachgoers. I don't, uh, other than making sure I don't hook one, what I'm looking at is passing whales and, you know, sea lions and seals and dolphins. and <laughs> I mean, that is just beautiful, and it's right next to L.A., so that's exciting. I think it was exciting when I was up in Alaska going after char and trying not to catch salmon, but we still did accidentally. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And what makes that exciting was because, well, you're surrounded by bears. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I must have some sort of um, genetic DNA marker in there from one of my early ancestors being eaten by a cave bear because I, as much as I'm happy they're there, I am very wary of bears. I still walk among them, but I found that quite exciting. And, of course, I think bone fishing is always exciting in the Caribbean, so I would add that in my stories. Certainly the bone fishing I did in the Turks and Caicos was exciting, very different kind of terrains there that I was on, and the fish were big and fast. And I guess I was going to throw one more in for you. Oh, I have to say something about false albacore. I love fishing for false albacore on the fly. If, if people haven't done it and they are doing some salt water, they really should. My favorite place to do that is Long Island. But I've also done it in Florida. And what made that exciting in a kind of sad sort of way is the sharks down there have become conditioned. And as soon as you hook a fish, you have to try to get in fast because the sharks appear out of nowhere. And... Um, they're going to have to, I'm, I'm going to put a teaser here, they're going to have to uh, read my book to get the story of the battles with the sharks because it's definitely, <laughs> okay. it's, it's definitely exciting and meaningful and uh, in some ways hopeful, in some ways tragic, So, but def definitely exciting. Would, tell, us oh, more about oh, the, oh. The, tell us more about the bone fishing, Turks and Caicos. I've never fished well, there. I have no idea what it's like there. And I've, I've fished for bonefish in, in a number of islands, in the Bahamas and elsewhere, but I have to say the Church and Caicos is my favorite 
of my limited experience compared to other bonefish anglers. First of all, the people are amazing, and they, they call themselves belongers. And the people are so kind, and so the culture is so beautiful. The islands themselves are beautiful. The water is one of the few areas in the Caribbean where I still see some healthy reefs. And uh, what I also love about fishing bonefish there is you can have everything from the kind of sand flat or turtle grass flats that we're all used to when we're bonefishing to um, these kind of deep sea plateaus that they have, which they'll often call banks, like Red Bank or whatever else have different names for them. So you're out in the middle of the ocean. You cannot see any land whatsoever. Uh, you have to be with someone who knows what they're doing, obviously. And then suddenly the depths of the ocean disappear and you're in two or three feet of water. Um, right. And that area is just teeming with bonefish and sharks and barracuda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, I think, the most exciting and challenging. It's also quite windy. You're out at sea. There's nothing to break the wind. Uh, so for me, it was quite challenging and exciting because you're also trying to protect these bonefish, and the sharks have learned, and the barracuda have learned opportunistic feeding. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, and you're walking in areas that sometimes is coral rubble and other sharp objects, plus all the sea urchins, and so you know you really do have to pay attention, but. I find bone fishing in the Turks and Cape Coast to be, first of all, stunningly gorgeous because of the scenery. The water is clean. The reefs are healthier than other places. And the fish I experienced were big, from my standards anyway. So, uh, and uh, Yeah, those, uh, those banks you're talking about, and it sounds like what in Belize they call pancake flats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're out under deep blue, deep ocean, and then all of a sudden, boop, up comes this. And you don't know how the guides, they all know where they are. (laughs) They they pilot the boat right to them, and you're like, there's no markers out here. (laughs) No GPS. I I have to tell you, I was wondering if he was going to kill me and throw me overboard. (laughs) 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 Did I I piss him off? Because there's no land and we're heading yeah. out to deep sea in this little skiff, and there we were in this magical spot. And, of course, there are no anglers anywhere near you. There are right, no humans. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, these are the great things that fly fishing leads us to get to do and why some of my fellow anglers might find me weird because I stop in the middle of it so I can sit down and, and scribble out things I don't Scribble out forget. something, yeah. Yeah, or, or, yeah. Just, or sometimes I just sit there and enjoy what I'm seeing. I don't want to get so busy fishing that I missed how beautiful it was. So, yeah, I'm not a hardcore angler. I'm a hardcore liver. You know, <laughs> I, I, I live hard. Yeah, yeah, I watch your social feeds. It doesn't look like you're living that hard. You always have, well, seem to have a glass of wine there on the table somewhere, so... Well, that's, to me, it. when I'm talking about hardcore living, I'm not talking about living hard. <laughs> I, I did that for 35 years. I mean, I make sure that I'm making the most of it every day. Oh, well, again, I come back to the wine that's <laughs> yes, <laughs> making the exactly. most of the day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, there's certain things my cardiologist knows I'm not giving up. 
<laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm yeah. so white healthy well, I am. So. But, yeah, but you see, you know how, you know, when you do these things, you affect a lot of people, Steve. And when I see those pictures, the nice glass Cabernet, glass Cabernet, then I have to go get one. See? <laughs> so I so you're, you're yeah, you're affecting people outside of your writing even, you know? So anyway, just one really little want, side note. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, because you're on social media with me, Roger, that I have kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, title I use for some of my writing that's, you know, semi-private. It's what I'm sharing with people on social media with me. And I refer to myself as the imperfect Texan Buddha and warrior poet. And that is tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> but not far from true. Yeah. <laughs> and I am trying to say, hey, I went, and I keep bringing this up, 35 years of people knew the horrors I've seen, experienced, and be surrounded by, they would not know how I could possibly be the optimistic, happy, and frankly kind person that I have remained. And I, I yeah. want people to see me laughing with a glass of wine, not not cowering yeah. somewhere with an angry look on my face. Uh, uh, I don't ever it. have a bad day fishing ever. It doesn't. Yeah. If I got skunked, it doesn't ruin my day. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We all like to look at it that way. Let's take a, another quick break, Steve, and we'll come back and talk about more of your experiences that you had in the book. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies prides themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com. Again, that's epflies.com. And do a little shopping today. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio? We're talking with Steve Ramirez about casting seaward. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, about that form on our homepage, send it in, and uh, we'll get it over to Steve here. So, okay, Steve. Um, so, okay, now you can't use the same Corbina story. So, I'm going to ask you. What, okay, which experience was the most challenging? <laughs> okay, and, and this already, it doesn't have to be about catching the fish. It could be about riding a motorcycle through the swamp to get there. But you know, well, which, you whichever one it is. You're not too far <laughs> off because I'm not going to say the Corbina. I will not say that again. I think I've sold them hard enough. And, frankly, I don't want to go back to the beach and find everybody lined up there. So uh, <laughs> I'd say the most challenging thing I did writing this book, I had the pleasure of doing. And I say pleasure in kind of a, you know, it wasn't pleasurable. It was just a, a great thing to do with Mark Hieronymus, a fantastic biologist who works for Child Unlimited in Alaska. And Mark did an amazing job of helping me to pursue something I wanted to do. I told him I wanted to follow Pacific salmon from the ocean all the way up to their natal streams to the place where the smallest, smallest salmon in the Tongass wilderness are spawned and are growing to size before they head to sea. That's a pretty tall order. And we actually met up the first day with uh, another person who's become, that's everything that's happening for me. I keep making wonderful friends, and we stay friends. 
So uh, we went out with uh, Captain Alan Corbett, who has a boat out of Juneau called the Narwhal, and uh, he's just a great guy and a wonderful captain. And we went out and we caught salmon at sea, basically, in salt water, which is what I wanted to start with. And we went from there, and then Mark and I started up, I'm not going to say which rivers per se, some of the rivers I did change the names to protect the fish. And we went up some rivers, and we, uh, since the salmon were spawning, we were trying not to catch the salmon. We were trying to target char that were following the salmon, Dolly Barton char, and we were using, you know, pretty simple fishing with a egg fly and the dropper. And we caught a lot of Dolly Barton. Accidentally got some anger strikes next, and we caught some salmon as well. We, of course, treated all those fish well. But that was challenging in itself. I mentioned miasma, and by that, at that time, I did not realize the other issue I was dealing with with my heart. But um, if anybody has ever tried, we'll call it hiking, in the forest with no trails in southeast Alaska, it is a challenging thing to do, not to mention just the wading. So we basically were hiking in on bear trails, and I can tell you bears do, in fact, do what you think they do in the woods. So, and uh, that was challenging on the third day. That was the most challenging thing because what we had to do on the third, well, I shouldn't say third day, it was more than three days. On the third portion of the trip was basically hike up the rivers we had been fishing for the char and salmon until they turned into tiny tributaries way back in the Tongass wilderness. And then we climbed through rainforest until those tributaries turned into, say, two and a half, three feet wide little trickles in the middle of the rainforest. And what you're doing is you're, you're ascending and climbing through Devil's Club and Rotten Blowdown. And let me tell you, for me, it was challenging physically. It was all I could do to do this. But we did. And what made that really interesting is on the last day, what we did is we were catching tiny fried coho salmon with dip nets. And we did that to prove that those salmon were needing those waters way up there in the wilderness in order to rear the young that would be the next generations. And we had to prove that so the Forest Service would not sell out that area to chop down the trees and the clear cut and destroy that that tributary. Uh, I wanted that story in this book. I want people to realize that we need, as Mark would say, all the habitat. You know, mm -hmm. no salmon in the tributary, there's no salmon in the sea. It's just the That's way it right. goes. And no yep. salmon in the sea, there's no salmon in the tributary. That's the way it goes. Same for striped bass, same for shad. And we forget that. We think, oh, yeah, striped bass, that's a, that's a sea, seagoing fish. But no, they need to be able to get past our dams. So, yeah, that was the most challenging, climbing through that rainforest. And, and half the time when you slide, you do reach for that devil's club and get a handful of thorns. Uh, it puts off a noxious kind of smell that made my asthma go crazy. That was tough. Jeez, yeah. That was really tough. I was exhausted. But I am. it's one of those things um, – you're so glad you did it. I don't feel like do, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So glad you I did mean, it. I, 
I know that that part of the world, and uh, yeah, those forests are unforgiving for uh, to travelers <laughs> trying to go now, for Mark. Them. For Mark, I'm going to tell you right now, he's a, he's like a billy goat. So I mean, he was wonderful with me, but he's taller than me, and he, you know, his long legs were going right over logs. I had to crawl over like I was an Ewok out of Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was much yeah. tougher for me. Yeah, I still remember. Uh, I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, for some of my youth, oh. and uh, I used to go hike with my dad up the mountains. He was looking for bear, and uh, you know, hunting. And I was like probably in fifth or sixth grade at the time. I just considered it a hike, but uh, you know, and we never did find a bear except one day we were in the willows and call a bear brush down in the you know kind of in a ravine and. And it's, you know, it's like you're going through these tunnels of brush, right? Um, right. And we, we're coming down the trail and see a pile of steaming dung. And I go, yep. oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. This is, yeah, is going to be the worst day of my life. <laughs> Luckily, we it still didn't. Be. We never did find a bear with me around. You know, he did later on by himself. But uh, but when you said you you know what you find in the woods, yeah, I know. I've seen it steaming. That's right. too darn close. Well, and, you know, and we're... <laughs> We were fishing, and this is, you know, anybody who's done this in Alaska knows, you're fishing on sand, on gravel bars where you can see the freshly dead salmon everywhere with their guts ripped out because the bear just left when they heard you coming. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, everything's still, and the, the row's still falling out of the dead, dying salmon because they were just right there. And right, you can right. smell You can smell them. And uh, yeah. for me, having lived in Africa for a couple of years, they gave me memories of that because I've been in some thick bush in Africa that's not bears there. It's lions and, and leopards and oh, my. Yeah, yeah. All part of the natural world, right? Yes. So Greg Nichols from Alabama wants to know, what was the hardest to target? Corbina's off the list. <laughs> okay, I cannot say Corbina, so the hardest target after that. I mean, I would Corbina's say the hardest like target after that is musky, and people are going to say, why is there musky in a saltwater book? Remember, it's an ocean book. So I don't want to be a spoiler here, but the final chapter is musky. And so I will say the reason is this saltwater book begins in a small stream in the Texas Hill Country that ultimately spills into the Gulf of Mexico, and it ends at the headwaters of the Mississippi because I am making a point. It's all connected. You know, it's all connected. If you love salt water, you need to love the fresh water and vice versa. So... Uh, yeah, I would say musky is the next one since Corbin is off the plate. Um, and I also am addic addicted to that. I guess I love punishment. It might be the moraine in me. Uh, I love the casting and casting and casting and searching and hoping. And uh, I'm not going to tell people how it goes in the story. But, um, yeah, I would say musky is my next one. And if I had to put one on top of that, I always find bone fishing to be really fascinating. They're not as hard as Corbin or Muskie, but they certainly make you think. You've got to think on many, many planes. And I love fishing for anything where you've got to consider tides. Right. So, mm -hmm. so Muskie and then after that, Bones. Um, okay. 
Well, muskie, uh, you know, they're a lot of work. I mean, you got heavy gear. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like saltwater fishing because, you know, you, these foot-long lures at times, you know, flies, and uh, throwing those, so pulling them out of the water wet and, you know, sinking to oh, yeah. I mean, it. You know, you're spending, you know, eight hours going down a, a river and, and you're chucking a fly that's the size of half a chicken. <laughs> what? Right. So, well, but like I said, I think it, it may be the jarhead in me that I really enjoyed the challenge, and I, I felt good at the end of the day that my arms still worked, and and uh, we did in this particular trip, we did three days of muskie fishing, uh, just all day, from the first light to the end of light, and uh, I definitely want to do more of that. So yeah, I tend to really lean towards a lot of the challenging stuff. I really love it, but I have to say I also. I love catching a bluegill in a pond with a three-way, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what? How did I do? I kept core being out of it. Are you okay, Roger? Yeah, yeah, you're okay, yeah. But you didn't, it didn't really tell the story about the muskie, so they're going to have to get the book. You're going to have to tell one of these stories completely, so I'll get it out. Oh, uh, I don't Maybe know. the next one. All right, what experience did you learn the most from about fishing? Well, again, I think you want me to pick one experience, but I'm learning a ton because I keep putting myself in situations where it's the first time I've ever done it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I'm, fair enough. I'm constantly going after fish I've never gone after in a place I've never been, and I have you know four days to figure it out. And what I've told people, I started casting seaward on the day that I turned 60, and I'm 62 now. And... Uh, I tell you that because at 60, I told people, well, I'm actually a six-year-old. And that's the way I'm approaching this. I have been experimenting as I go, learning more about working with top water, streamers, shad darts, deep sea sinking lines, and all of it's different. And I also find that depending on where I am in the world, people will fish for the same fish differently uh, because in that part, of its life cycle, it's acting like a different fish. So by pushing myself and not being afraid to look like an idiot, <laughs> so I'm learning all the time. And I love it. I think it's keeping me young. So that's my answer, actually. I'm learning a lot. If I had to pick one place, which I think you probably want me to do, where I've learned the most of saltwater fishing to me has been what I do as a bass fisherman, throwing streamers. So I'd have to say the one thing I learned the most is working in Alaska on char, which wasn't hard, but we tried all kinds of different techniques. Well, I'll say with Pacific salmon, depending on their life cycle, I had to keep changing what I was doing. So I would say I learned a ton there. Yeah, a lot that's going on up there. Yeah, I I remember fishing for those char and Dolly Varden uh, both in a side uh, stream uh, away from the salmon and well theoretically away from the salmon. But a lot of times we were floating through pretty much dying king salmon because right. the char and dollies were right behind them, you know, right. um, eating. And yeah, it was one of those things you'd you'd hook one of those king salmon and you go, oh, I don't want this on the, yeah, you weren't rigged up right. for that. Plus, they're not in their prime, you know, so it's like, how, right. how fast can I bust this thing off so I can get back to going after the char and stuff? But, yeah, yeah we the, did the, the same thing. 
and they were we had we had really at that that time we had about three variety of salmon running at the same time, four mm -hmm. if you count a string that we didn't fish, and but yeah, it, we were trying to target those Dolly Varden, and what we did to make it more, I will tell this part of the story. I learned from Mark about different ways of doing it because you know after a while I have to say it gets quite easy to catch these fish on a egg fly because those those Dolly Barton are behind the salmon picking up the eggs that blow by. Right, right. So we made it more complicated. And he, he said to me, uh, you want to try dry balling? I got a little worried when he said that. <laughs> I didn't know what he meant. Yeah. <laughs> I, found that, <laughs> I found it was pretending the, pretending the egg was a dry fly, getting one that will see if you could trick the fish into looking up for an egg where it shouldn't be. And then I won't tell any more, but we just we, we went from there, and he came up with another way to make it more complicated. So we kept making it harder and harder on ourselves to catch the fish. Oh, because really catching <laughs> the fish is almost secondary to the trip. Yeah, yeah. Right, it was, right. you know, it's, it's all of it. And, and walking across a, a river that's so full of salmon that you're trying not to step on one in order to wait across, um, that's, you know, quite yeah. an experience. You're trying not to to step in a, in a nest site. You're trying not to cause any harm. Anybody yeah, who has a, not done that, I hope they enjoy the stories in my book, and I hope it gets them on a plane to go do it once in their life because it's not just about catching the fish. It's seeing the immense, I'll say, miracle of watching salmon in the life cycle. They're incredible, incredible creatures. And um, yeah, and the whole forest counts on them. Without the salmon, there's no Tongass. Yeah, right. Yeah, I I would say the same thing. Having grown up there and learning how to fish in Alaska, it's a magical place. And went back years later with my father and my son, and the three of us were fishing that same stream I was telling you about, and we were all you know fish on. And there's three of us with fish on. I look upstream, it's my dad. I look downstream, it's my son. And it was. One of those experiences I'll never forget and appreciate. And it and it was more about being with my father and my son that day than of course each having a fish on at the same time was, was magical too. So yeah. but uh, yeah. Yeah, but that, that place is it's still a magical place. It's changed a lot since I grew up there, but uh, there's still places you can go to like you did to uh to, to even get into more of the magic. <laughs> than uh, most people do. So, yeah, that's great for you. What about an experience that you uh, helped you de develop personally that you can talk about? Well, I can say that one that was really moving for me and caused me a lot of introspection was I really wanted to go back to the low country of South Carolina where in 1980 I became a U.S. Marine and, of course, that wasn't a fun time going to Paris Island for three months. But I wanted to go back and relive that space. I wanted to see it. And I had these memories of going there as a, a kid, 19 years old, and arriving at the airport in Charlotte and – I'm sorry, in Charleston – and uh, having the, the receiving drill sergeants greet us. And I say greeting in a very funny way because they're not greeting you nicely and your life changes from there. And I wanted to go back there for a lot of reasons. Another thing I say about this book is it's dedicated to my father who passed away 
seven years ago, and it's when I decided to leave my other career and start my writing in earnest. So, and he was connected to that too. He came up to Paris Island to be with me. And so I wanted to go there and I ended up fishing with another one of my new lifelong friends, Greg. And Greg and I went out on his father's boat. His father and my father turned out our birthdays were uh, simultaneous, almost same day. Hmm. It turned out that they had a lot in common and they had both passed. And we went out on his father's boat into the waters that his dad took him in when he was growing up there. And we shared a number of days in fishing and driving rain and storms and even dodging a funnel cloud. And it was spectacular. And being there brought back so many memories. And we talked a lot with both our fathers being gone about mortality and about I think you can connect fly fishing to anything. I'm not the first person to say that, obviously. Fly fishing is a metaphor for just about anything you can think of. Um, I would say that was a very moving trip. Mm -hmm. And that one, there was a lot of debriefing that goes on after I come off one of these trips. I spent a lot of time thinking, what did I learn? Usually you're learning something about yourself. Right. You might learn how to do a new rig. You might learn how to cast a little differently for that rig, and you might learn something about the fish in their habitat, and you might learn where the best barbecue place is in South Carolina. But what you really learn is about yourself and how you interact with other people. So I would say that was a very magical trip to, to Charleston, fishing the low country. What, uh, what were you guys fishing for there? <laughs> we were fishing for red, redfish and sea trout yeah. and the possibility of flounder, though we did not get any flounder. Um, okay. He had gotten them before. But, yeah, we were catching redfish and sea trout, and uh, it's just amazing. Every place I go, and I'm sure you've had this experience, I think to myself, I wish I could see this place 100 years ago. Yeah. Uh, because you know it's not what it was. And no, no place is. No. No, no place is. Yeah. And there is no part of this planet that is not touched by human, by the, the impact of humanity. Yeah, there's no yeah. place. Uh, so, um, yeah, so uh, that's what I think. Every place I've been, I keep thinking, you know, because even in a place like that where it's a hugely, you know, this vast, beautiful redfish population growing, the, the truth is the vast, but a lot of those redfish are coming out of hatcheries. Um, and that's a problem you have with salmon. It's a problem we have a lot of our, our fish that we call game fish. You can't tell how healthy that population really is because the state game agencies are raising them and dumping them in the water. And that's right. not the same as having healthy fish. You know, right, if, right. If you, you, if you take 10,000 hatchery-raised salmon and dump them in the inland passage, that doesn't mean your salmon population is healthy in the rivers. But they yeah. get counted. They get counted all the same. Right, um, right. Yeah. Those are manufactured fish. They might as well be bait, you know, at a tropical fish farm. Yeah. Yeah, in, in many areas it's like that. You know, the put-and-take business in the West here, too, right. is very similar. Um, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of things makes you think back what it was like. I actually have... On my property here in Colorado, I have what they call Indian prayer trees. 
And these are trees that were trained by the Ute Indians when they used to mm -hmm. drink with this area by their shamans or, you know, medicine men or women. Right. Um, and they are, they serve several purposes. One, they have a directional tree. One is a prophet prophecy tree. Another one is a kind of a burial tree. And they, they have different, you know, they're doing different things and meant different things at the time. But what they did is they, they trained young pinion, uh, uh, ponderosa pines, bent them over, and then shaped them like bonsai. Okay? Well, I've got mm -hmm. these trees on my property here. And every time I go out of the house, I think I look at those trees and I think, what was it like when they were training these trees? Because some of these trees are five, 600 years old. You right. know? And there were Native Americans on my property here training those trees. And I just think that's a magical thing, you know, when you think about going too. back in time. Yeah. I so, do um, and, yeah, it's. And, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm go ahead. About, I'm excited by what you're saying because uh, in everything I'm writing, I think you know this, but people who haven't read it won't know. I am writing about all of that, too. I am writing about who was here before us. I'm writing about the petroglyphs that are on the walls. I'm writing about the trees. And recently, uh, on my social media, actually with Instagram, I showed a video where I was fishing on the Guadalupe River, and I just laid my fly rod next to a on the massive roots of the old cypress tree. And I think mm -hmm. people at first thought, well, he's he's videoing the river rushing by him. Isn't it beautiful? But then I swing up. I want them to see that this tree is hundreds of years old, and it's so big around that four people arm to arm could not get their arms around it and touch fingers. And yeah. I pay attention to that. That's that's why I'm weird enough to stop fishing for a while and just look at the trees. Sure, um, sure. I, yeah. That's part of it to me. And I hope we all get like that. I mean, I, I know I'm biased, but I want more people to not miss the fish in the fishing and realize how beautiful that fish is rather than dump that one and run to the next. Right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more to it. Um, yeah. The next question, because I know I saw it in your book that you did fish for, I believe you were fishing for striped bass, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And um, uh, Phil McCartney wrote in, he's Bill's from Kentucky, longtime listener. I think he's listened to every show that I've ever done. <laughs> so the better fan out there. Um, but he wrote in and said, uh, the striped bass fishery along the east coast of the U.S. is not flourishing as it once was. Uh, the same is true of bluefish. What can you tell us about the factors that are at issue in attempts to manage those fisheries? Is it backing away from management decisions when data dictates restrictions are called for, lack of enforcement of regulations, forage fish being overfished, or all of the above and more? Do you know anything about what's going on up there? I do, actually, and, uh, okay, great. and I'm not trying to say this like I'm plugging my book, okay, even though I am in a way, but I write about this a lot in this book, and I wrote about some of it in the last book as well, because striped bass are one of my favorite fish, and I've mentioned, if you told me, well, Steve, you only get to fish one saltwater fish this year, and that's it, well, I'd be heading up to Long Island to fish for stripers with, with my buddy David. That would be my one choice. And they are in trouble. 
First thing I want to say, Phil, is a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. The second thing is you hit on a lot of the things that I'm aware of, but I'm going to go down just the ones that are in the top of my head. The first one is we forget that these are anadromous fish, meaning they have to go up fresh water in order to spawn. And anything we do along their habitat from the freshwater spawning areas that are dammed or polluted or too hot to the to the deep seas that they have to live in and part of their life, everything we do there is impacting them. The next thing I would say with you, I agree with you, is poor regulation and enforcement. And I do write about this. If you think about it, our Forest Service is run by the Department of Agriculture, like in other words, the people that are looking at corn output and pigs and hogs. That tells you a lot about what we think of our trees, their products. And our salmon, I'm sorry, our uh, fish, including stripers, are run through the Department of Commerce. And commerce has nothing to do with conservation, as you might know. When we look at the various agencies that control and influence the laws we have, and when I've looked at it, I've seen a lot of the fox guarding the hen house. And I think that's also an issue. I would add to that what I've seen again and again in striper country, and that means every part of it, is habitat loss and degradation. And that can be anything from pollution to the changes in the chemistry and the, and the temperatures. And just development, we've lost across America a vast majority of our healthy estuaries and transitional areas from land to sea. And all this stuff is needed for these fish, including stripers. Uh, and then the last one, which for some crazy reason has been allowed to become politicized, is I'm going to say climate change is changing everything. And when I say it, I'm going to boldly say human-induced climate change or human-accelerated climate change. And everywhere I've traveled around the world and around America, I have plainly seen the results and heard the results from people who have lived for generations in these areas. And people think it's just about the temperature of the day. That's weather, not climate. It's also about we're changing the pH of the ocean. It's becoming more acid, just like our trout rivers. So I am not without great hope or I couldn't write, Phil. But I'm going to put in there, I believe with all my heart that we are looking at the beginning of a potential calamity that will impact not only stripers but bluefish and you name it. I solidly believe we can turn this around, but it's going to take us all pulling together to make it happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Money wins. Money is power in, in America and across yeah. the world, and money wins. I was with a friend who's a guy down in South Texas, and I always ask people, you know, what are your concerns here? He's the one person that told me something that no one wants to hear, and uh, he talked about all his friends who were guides in South Texas who are trying to save the oysters and, and all this stuff, and, and that's all good work. But he said the bottom line is until people with money and power start to care, it's not going to make a damn bit of difference. Yeah, you're just uh, yeah picking at it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Um, we need to we need to be a voice. I am really worried about the striped bass. You nailed it, Phil. It's all those things in my estimation, and that's all. In my writing, you may notice I'm a poet as well, so I pay attention to what words I choose, and I'm trying to get us to start thinking of forage fish rather than bait fish, and habitat rather than fishery, 
uh, it may seem like a small thing, but ultimately, the way we speak of things is the way we treat them. And could you imagine if we just got a whole group of humans and called them bait humans? Um, yeah. <laughs> and they're yeah. forage fish. Yeah. It was, without the no. food, the stripers die. And right. without the right. algae for the forage fish, the forage fish die. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's just it's everything is connected. And I did try to write that in my striper section. <laughs> I'll bring up Corbina again. <laughs> I wrote about I wrote about sea crab, uh, well, sand crabs, or mole crabs, depending on where you're at, what you call them. Um, mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of things that are depending on that tiny little crustacean, and uh, people don't realize it. But as the ocean gets more acid, those crustaceans, all of them, are going to be unable to make shells for themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they will yeah. disappear. And our fish. Well, you know, it, it's um, yeah, it is interesting because we have to stop and thank some of the people, many of them presidents, that were able to preserve the national parks, wilderness areas, and we're still trying to do that. But think about that if that didn't happen. You know, we right. have condos in the middle of Yellowstone, and. Right. Um, I, one time when I was traveling for business, I was in a hotel room and I'm flipping channels and I, I don't know, I landed on this. It was just a, a documentary of um, the forestry industry and how basically they just marched from the East Coast to the West Coast, cutting everything down until they right. got to the Pacific Ocean. And then they go, oh, crap, no more trees. Now what? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until right. then that they realized oh, we have to look at this a little bit differently. But nobody bothered to look at it differently when they were, you know, at the Mississippi River or when they were at the, the Rocky Mountains. It had to, They had to get all the way to the other ocean before they realized that there was a problem. And and, and that was money. That was money yeah. driving that. It's money. So, and, and no one wants to look far enough to say, if all you cared about is money, that's going to go too, by the way, because business cannot function in a world that's collapsing. 80% of our oxygen comes from the ocean, is my understanding anyway. And the creatures that create that oxygen for us, the living things that create that oxygen for us, are dying out fast. So, I, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm doing the sky is falling, but what I, I love nature. I love the ocean. I love the fish. I love the rivers. And if you love something, you take care of it. You don't just use it. And uh, I think there's a whole lot of us out there like that. You know, we, yeah, we, there are. we do this not because we, you know, we may really enjoy it when our casting is right on, but that's not the reason we do it. And um, yeah. sitting in front of me, actually, is just by happenstance, is Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road. I don't know if any of your readers and your listeners have read it. I love reading writers who are so, um, such a great place because of their talents that they get to do anything they want in their writing because he breaks all the rules. But that, in the road, without telling too much of the story, characters are trying to get to the ocean, and when they get to the ocean, it's dead. Um, there's nothing left alive in the ocean. And I have to wonder, would we ever, you know, would any of us go there? Um, I love being in Montauk, not just because it's great fishing, but I love being on the front of that boat as it's skidding across the water 
and you're looking at you know flying fish coming through the air, or you're looking at dolphin or whatever. I, it's the whole thing. And uh, yeah, yeah, I I love seeing uh, the diamondback terrapins laughing at me when I make a lousy cast. So uh, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think we'll so leave it there. Question, Phil. Yeah, that was a great question. Great question. Yeah. Phil. And a great one to finish up the show with because you answered several other questions I had coming up and um, uh, gives us something to think about going forward, you know. So, yeah, I encourage everybody to read read Steve's books and uh, and think more about our environment. I think that's super important. But we've got to wrap it up tonight, Steve. Stick with me. Uh, we're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited, and a copy of your book. Casting Seaward, courtesy of Lions Press. I think I said Stackpole earlier, but they've got so many, uh, <laughs> I, I forget what you call them, but uh, divisions of Stackpole. Imprints, yeah, it's hard to keep track of them all, but but this is Lions Press. So um, Anyway, uh, stick with us. Uh, we'll be right back, and uh, we'll be giving away those prizes. So hang tight, and we'll, we'll do that just shortly. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization, providing integrated medical security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without a Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost you more than $100,000. That's why over 1 million members trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start at just 100 $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. Just click on that Global Rescue icon in the footer of Ask About Fly Fishing uh, website or on the right-hand column on our homepage. You'll see a logo there, too. Take you right to Global Rescue, and you can check out what they offer there. Just a reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, What did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. The winners of these drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show so you don't miss out on winning some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first uh, thing we're giving away is a, one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Uh, if you don't win the membership tonight, join anyway, because it's a great organization to support. And they support freshwater, warm water, salt water, and worldwide. So great organization. So we're going to give uh, – so let me, let me get my database here in front of me. And it looks like um, – looks like – Fred Miller is our winner tonight. Fred Miller, and uh, congratulations, Fred. And we'll reach out to you to get um, get you hooked up and get that membership going with FFI. Now, our, the second thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. So to learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org. And it looks like, uh, oh, somebody that asked a question tonight, Bill Redinger. Redinger uh, in Missouri. Um, so, Bill, congratulations. You've got yourself a Trout Unlimited membership as well. So 
So thanks for playing, guys, and uh, congratulations on, on winning those. Now we'll give, a quite, uh, give away a copy of Steve's latest book, Casting Seaward, courtesy of Lions Press. And um, let me clear my cue out here. Oh, there was one. Yeah, um, some other comments that have come in. I can't really go through them all. But one is uh, from Chug Owings in Moscow, Idaho. He says, Devil's Club is made by the devil himself. I'm sure you'll agree there, uh, Steve. <laughs> so, uh, let's see here. Okay, so um, so you have to put the answer to the question I'm going to ask in the form on our homepage there where you can ask questions during the show. Put your name, your location in there, and the first one that gets it right will win Steve's book, Casting Seaward. Let's see here. What uh, what was the most challenging fish to get to? What was the most challenging fish to get to that, that Steve talked about tonight? So um, I think, no, you can't give me three answers, Treg. That doesn't work. <laughs> he had it filled out before he said, and none of those are right, Treg. So there you go. You've got to play a little bit stronger for this one. This might be a hard one. Oh, looks like uh, Treg recovered. Um, he says salmon. Is that correct? Steve? If he means the baby coho, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, He's right. Yeah, hiking back up there. Yeah, uh, we got other ones. Corvina, no Bob, that's, uh, that's mm. not the right one. So... We'll give this one to Treg tonight. He's a, a yep. longtime listener, too. And, um, uh, yeah, that was quite the journey that Steve described. <laughs> I don't think I'll be fishing there either anytime soon. Those years are, are long past, but uh, uh, good memories, good memories. Well, Steve, hey, thank you so much for being on the show again with us. It's uh, always a pleasure and fun to talk to you. And congratulations on uh, uh, casting Seaward. And can't wait to thank see you. what the next book's all about. And and what that title will be, so uh, we'll have to wait. <laughs> yeah, I can hardly wait also, but I, I absolutely yeah, you can hardly wait. Also. So, uh, <laughs> thank you, Roger. It's been a pleasure to uh, be with you again and your wonderful listeners. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Hopefully all of you have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link in the top-line menu. In that archive, you'll find, I think, 378 shows now that you can search by keyword, keyword phrase. Just go ahead, put those in there. There's also some categories you can find uh, shows from. But uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised at all the information that's out there. Uh, our next broadcast will be on June 21st. We tried to do this last month, but uh, we ran into some technical glitches and challenges and whatever. Anyway, this upcoming show, we're going to be interviewing Ira, Ira Gruber. And a topic for the show is Ira Gruber's Atlantic Salmon Flies. Ira Hugh Gruber is known for the Atlantic salmon fishing techniques and 38 flies he developed over a lifetime of fishing on the Miramichi River in New Brunswick. Join us to hear from his grandson, Ira Gruber, the story of Ira's life as an angler and the stories about a few of his most famous flies. So be sure to add this show to your calendar. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Alliance Press, 
East Ferry Anglers, Muskie Town, Enrico Puglisi Flies, and Global Rescue for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well-